Got that one. It it under 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 it I love that. You probably recognize recognize that as as Adonai Safatayif Tachufia Gita Hilatecha. I love that nigun, and I love those words because just before the Amida. Just before the Shimona Esrei, we recite that, um, asking for the blessing of being able to open our lips. And um, I, uh, I've started doing my morning jog at like 5.30 in the morning because I can see the sun rising at that time when I'm running. And because hopefully everyone's sleeping in my house still. <laughs> and, um, and I just love the capacity of the eyes to watch the sun rise. But even more, I think of the same thing as the first time you open your lips in the morning, the blessing of, of breath, the, the blessing of speech, the blessing of eating. And um, it's amazing that we start the Amidah with such, with such words, that God, open my lips, so, so that my mouth can can declare your praise. And it's, um, it's almost like that could be the whole tefillah itself. That could be the whole prayer itself, just recognizing our capacity for speech to both heal or destroy, which was something we touched on last week, actually, the yin and the yang of bishul, of fire, the capacity to destroy and the capacity to heal, and the, the exact same tools, the exact same capacities, which are in place, that can be used in either direction. So friends, we're up to number 12. We're up to number 12, gozes. You're going to learn more about um, sheep shearing than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> Actually, once when I was living in Israel for two years in a caravan in the West Bank, uh, I, uh, in a frat in Gush Etzion, I, um, I, it was called Benazmanim. It's a, a break where people who have family in Israel, they go for two weeks to their family, or you, if you don't have family, you stay in the caravans. So I wanted to volunteer. So I said, send me someone to volunteer. I thought I'd be cutting carrots for the homeless, for the hungry or something. So they sent me to a little, uh, they sent me to a little settlement with like 10 families, kind of radical, radical settlers. And, uh, and they were shepherds out in this uh, little hilltop. And they, I said, so how am I volunteering here? I didn't know where I kind of got there. It was in, uh, it was in Jericho. Jericho is uh, pretty deep in the West Bank. I mean, it's, I, I hadn't been to a place quite like that before. I said, so how am I volunteering here? And they gave me a shepherd's uh, staff and they say, go take care of these sheep in the field. And so my mother calls my cell phone. She says, how you, how you doing? I said, ah, pretty good. She says, what are you doing? I said, ah, I'm shepherding in Jericho. And <laughs> uh, she said, come home to Chicago now. I don't know what you're doing over there, but um, you know, it was a remarkable thing. We talk about how the um, we talk about how the prophets were shepherds, um, and you can see why because I could not keep these things in place. 
these these sweet little animals were running all over the place. And now I guess the staff is there to keep them in place. But what am I supposed to do? Whack them? I'm not going to whack the sheep, you know. So they're running all over the field. They said, "Hey, you're our volunteer. The sheep are all over the place." So I can understand why. Uh, you know, herding cats, as they say, why Jewish leadership would require some kind of shepherd skills. And the truth is today in Kalal Yisrael, we see the same problem of uh, the blessings of Jewish individuality and the struggles of Jewish collectivity um, and the ability to maintain communities and any kind of notion of, of, uh, of united peoplehood. <laughs> and so maybe we should all go back to sheep school. Anyways, we're going to learn about sheep shearing a little bit. So the first 11 malachot, we discussed were related to the agrarian activities based around the production of the dyes and the showbread. Our next 13 malachot, including this one, are concerned with producing coverings and curtains for the tabernacle. Again, these are parts of the Torah that we may fall asleep in in shul if we're in shul for them uh, when it's being read. Is it a tabernacle? What is all this stuff? Um, but um, we're trying to bring some of this to life in regards to creation, in regards to mishkan, and in regards to Shabbat, and in regards to our tikkun, tikkun olam. So the first one here is gozes. Gozes is our topic today, which is shearing sheep or cutting hair. While this malacha also applies to human hair being pulled out, we're originally concerned with the specifics of shearing sheep. Gaz, so you know, there's an interesting machloket, an interesting debate around whether the shoresh of a Hebrew word, the, the root of a Hebrew word, is relevant to the two letters or only to three. Rav Hirsch thinks that two letters is significant. Most think it requires all three. But Gozes, of course, is Gimel Zion Zion. And Gimel Zion, Gaz, means, um, means uh, Gimel Zion, Gaz means to disappear or pass away. To disappear or pass away is Gaz, which is related to Gozes, this idea of removing or shearing or, um, or, or in modern Hebrew, a fleece a fleece or, um, <clears throat> or, or th that, that emerges from such an act of shearing. Um, but gaz itself is related and can be used in interesting poetic ways as well uh, in terms of disappearing or passing away. Unfortunately, there are many cruelties shown towards sheep in the shearing process. Some suggest that shearing, if done humanely, which is rarely the case today, is good for sheep. For example, here's what one commentator suggests. When domesticated, uh, this person writes, when domesticated sheep cannot shed their fleece themselves, their wool will grow longer and longer while flies lay eggs in moist folds of their skin. The hatched maggots can eat the sheep alive. So they want to say it's actually an act of compassion to shear um, the wool uh, off the sheep, to shear the fur off the sheep the hair off the sheep, and uh, lest the, uh, the flies lay eggs and, 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 um, and these maggots eat the sheep alive, which, which does happen. But is it really true that sheep need humans' help to survive naturally? Before, domestic, before domestication, sheep didn't need to be sheared by humans and survive just fine without us. Throughout the centuries, however, human beings have specifically bred sheep to grow thick wool that won't shed, so we can use more of it similar to how we've bred chickens to have more meat and to lay the most eggs, even if it means the chickens could collapse from their own weight, making human shearing necessary today. Domesticated sheep have been bred to grow a tremendous amount of wool, which if not sheared will cause them harm, although older sheep will produce less and will not need to be sheared as often. 
Many animal rights advocates would ideally want to end the wool industry entirely, even if it means fewer sheep existing, since that industry takes something from an animal. An animal welfareist, on the other hand, would be more open to the idea of humane shearing for the sheep who already exist or shearing sheep who live on a local, humane, sustainable farm and are like pets, not raised for meat. So if you're not familiar to the animal advocacy world, let me lay out those, that distinction one more time. There's the most um, radical of animal advocates are called abolitionists, right? No, um, complete separation. The, the, the mid-level would be animal rights activists who believe animals, not just that humans have responsibilities, but animals themselves have rights. And then the least radical would be animal welfareists, which would say um, it's okay for us to benefit from animals um, we don't need to eradicate many systems which we rely upon. We just need to do them more humanely. So that so I just laid out the distinction in in, in the argument of uh, advocacy for wool and shearing in regards to an animal rights advocate versus an animal welfareist. So here's a response from a farmer who discusses the question of what would happen to domesticated animals if humans were suddenly gone and, and unable to care for them. They write, most of the domesticated breeds of livestock will not survive. They all depend on human care and would quickly decline. Sheep would, quick, quick, would die quick, especially wool sheep. There are breeds of sheep that do, that do not grow a wool coat that would last longer, but they would die off soon too. Wool sheep cannot suddenly just stop growing wool. It cannot be bred out in a generation or two. It would take hundreds of years to, uh, to breed wool growth um, to breed wool growth completely out of sheep. Wool sheep need to be shorn once a year at least. If not, the wool keeps growing and will inhibit movement. The animal will go wool blind and will not be able to see. They would not be able to eat and the wool around the butt would get covered in feces. They would get an infection or fly, or, or fly strike. They could not get bred or give birth. Okay, so that's what that farmer writes. Now for wild sheep, which now sadly comprise only a small percentage of sheep, sheep shearing is entirely unnecessary because sheep shed naturally as warranted by their bodies and the conditions in which they live. As such, sheep shearing is a practice designed by humans for the purpose of commoditizing sheep that in the process causes them pain and distress and leaves them subject to slaughter when the wool extracted from them is no longer marketable. I suppose it's true that once individual sheep are sheared, it is necessary to continue shearing those sheep because their wool grows back longer than is healthy for them in that the initial shearing disrupts their natural bodily rhythms. At industrialized sheep farms, this continuous cycle of shearing typically occurs in a harmful fashion. At similar family-run sheep farms, excuse me, at smaller family-run sheep farms, I think it's likely that sheep are treated more sensitively. The Torah takes the need to be discriminate in deciding when to shear quite seriously. There is a Torah prohibition against shearing the wool of one's bechor, firstborn male. It says here in Deuteronomy 15:19, every firstling, every bechor that shall be born among your cattle and flock, the males, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. Do not work with the firstling of your cattle and do not shear the firstling of your flock. So that's one case we see in the Torah, the mandate that um, is around, around shearing in regards to the Bechor. The firstborn or the Bechor has the status of a sanctified animal that was redeemed. Indeed, one Midrash compares the Jewish people's commitment to tzedakah to sheep shearing. This is interesting. We probably wouldn't have thought we'd go here. But charity or striving for justice connected to sheep shearing. Here's what it says in Midrash Shirat, Shirat Shirim, Zuta. 
So this is on, on the Midrash on the, the book Song of Songs. No one should say that I will have depleted my property, nichasai, from the root for gathering in. No one should say that I will have depleted my property if I give to the poor. Rather, one should look and see that all who do not deplete do not, deplete, do not replenish. Thus, the hair of one's head and one's beard, which is trimmed, always grows back, while the hair of one's eyebrows, which are never trimmed, do not grow. Israel is analogous to a lamb that is sheared, and yet every year it grows new wool, while the pig is never sheared and never replenished. So the idea here they're saying is that the Jewish people, part of our resiliency um, is actually our ability to build up what does not tear us down, right? Our capacity to give in a way that sustains us. And tzedakah, they're saying, is an example. Some people who have trouble giving tzedakah think, if I give $1,000, I'm losing $1,000. I have $1,000 less because I donated $1,000. Other people don't think of an investment or tzedakah in such a way. Of course, that naturally makes sense. I have $1,000 less. But if there's an expanded sense of self, it's not just me and then beyond me, but I'm a part of a collective, then when I give tzedakah, it's not me losing it. It's me reallocating it within my collective. So too, when I light a, when I light a candle and I light another candle, I don't lose my flame by giving light to another candle. I've merely spread light without losing my own light. So too, when I give tzedakah, I, I sustain the good in others and other people and other institutions without, um, without depleting myself. Um, and that is the idea of how they're comparing that to sheep shearing, that when we cut this hair, it grows back. And so it keeps others warm. The kindness of the wool keeps others warm while the sheep grows back their own, uh, their own hair as well. Rabbi Yishmael extends this idea beyond the nature of the Jewish people toward the issue of divine reward and punishment. It's interesting that the issue of divine reward and punishment has been coming up around Ruth Bader Ginsburg of blessed memory in that um, uh, many people have been saying, oh, how, <laughs> as if it's the first time it's relevant. How do we publicly talk about a Jew dying? Is rest in peace offensive? Um, or is this idea true that someone who dies, Erev Rosh Hashanah, is a tzedeket, is a tzaddik? Is a, that, and the idea being there that we say, you're written in the book of life for the year, and thus you were supposed to die, but God waited for the very last moment of the year before the new year begins to finally take your life. Is this true? There was an article that came out today in the JTA exploring whether that statement is true. And in fact, like many things that go viral, it is not explicitly true. It may be implicitly true in regards to uh, how it could be understood, but it is definitely not a direct quote, although it certainly uh, could be understood in such a way. In any case, uh, <laughs> Rabbi Rick Jacobs, the, the head of the URJ of the reform movement, quoted it himself, but then also said, oh, well, I'm not so sure I believe in um, divine reward and punishment anyways, although the idea is kind of powerful. So, um, you know, it's, it, 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 there are these challenges of ideas that are powerful and do they jive with our deeper theology um, in regards to how we believe in reward and punishment. And, um, uh, and yet, on the other hand, other people resolve the issue of theodicy by believing in olam haba. The notion of an afterlife resolves certain theological problems. Of course, this is kind of an ancient idea that, of course, this world isn't run with justice. Of course, the good do not prosper and the, and the wicked do not uh, fail in this world. 
The only way we can understand um, a broader system of justice is if we believe something happens after this life. Um, and of course, um, that's not, a, you know, a, a TKO, as they say, a TKO um, in regards to, uh, under, you know, embracing afterlife. It's a complicated idea. But if someone has a commitment to believing ultimately that God is just, there is a God and that God is good and there is justice involved, then one has to believe that someone who died in the Holocaust does not have the fate as, same fate as Hitler. One has to believe um, that a mass murderer doesn't have the same fate as a young child who dies painfully at the age of one. Um, and so divine reward and punishment is quite uh, complicated, and yet it intersects with our notions of, of believing in the good, good of the cosmos of, uh, and uh, of, of, of cosmic justice. In any case, that, that's all a segue into what Rabbi Yishmael says here in the Talmud of Gittin 7a. Whoever shears off part of their possessions and dispenses them in tzedakah will be rescued from the punishment of hell. Imagine two sheep crossing a river, one shorn and one, the other not shorn. The shorn one gets across, the unshorn one does not. And so, um, uh, by the way, I, 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 when I originally put the source in there, I didn't think properly about it. But I assume they mean, and tell me if you, in our conversation if I'm wrong, I assume what they mean is that the unshorn sheep uh, can't swim because the, um, it becomes, their hair becomes too heavy. Um, I don't know why they can't get across. Maybe they just mean divine intervention. But is it true that like a shorn sheep can, can swim? I mean, can she, first of all, can sheep swim? Um, the, the premise seems to be yes. I've, I don't know the answer to that. And if they can swim, can they swim more easily if their hair is shorn? I suspect that's true. And with a very, very heavy coat, is it too heavy for them to swim if, once it gets wet? I don't know the answer to that. So anyways, if you know anything about that, let me know. Otherwise, I'll, I'll try to research it. Um, in any case, the idea here is that, um, um, that part of our connection to heaven or hell, which of course uh, I would never say Jews believe, I can't stand when people say Jews believe or Jews don't believe. Jews believe all kinds of things, you know what I mean? Um, the question is, is Judaism, and the truth is there is no Judaism either. Judaism doesn't believe anything, there's Judaisms. There's Judaisms. Um, and so I do think that um, we need to you know, fix that in our discourse. There's nothing Jews believe and don't believe. There's nothing Judaism believes and doesn't believe. There's Judaisms. Now, I think what we can say is the dominant thrust in traditional Jewish thought, okay, that's the way I like to frame it. The dominant thrust in Jewish traditional thought engages with the idea of Gehenna and Olam Haba. I don't know how um, this emerged in the late 20th century, this idea that Jews don't talk, that Judaism it, um, doesn't embrace some idea of heaven and hell. Um, this was, you know, emerged from people like Harold Kushner with all, with all, uh, respect. He should, he should be healthy and well, uh, and other kind of, uh, 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 progressive Jewish thinkers who tried to kind of diminish that, that traditional Jewish theology. Now one can reject that traditional theology, but we shouldn't pretend like it's not there. So in any case here, whether it is ontologically or better said, eschatologically true, um, or whether it is merely a tool of the rabbis of emphasis. They want to emphasize a moral teaching. And so they say, this is so important, it has cosmic impact of heaven and hell. So here they want to say tzedakah is so important that it determines one's, uh, one's future in, in Olam Haba. Uh, oh, thank you for that, Lauren. Sheep can swim, but if the wool is heavy, they can drown. Oh, Dr. Google, I, I, Rabbi Google, as I like to say, um, that the, the role of a rabbi is to provide what Google cannot. 
<laughs> if you can get all your answers on Google, then uh, we don't need rabbis anymore. And so rabbis need to only uh, provide what Google cannot or mostly provide. But in this case, uh, Google provided even more. So now we have the answer. Now, we, well, if you didn't already know that, now you know. So that's what, so, and so the rabbis knew that. The rabbis saw sheep make it across the river, and they saw a sheep drown. So I, as you can tell, I'm quite removed from sheep swimming. Reality, just not part of my Scottsdale, Arizona daily life. I wish it was, but it's part of uh, what can I do? What can I say? It's part of my own limitations. And so, uh, uh, and so we see here um, this idea of Sadaka in regards to heaven. Now, uh, Eric, I'm just going to read what you wrote, and I'll come back to it later. Oh, yes. Yes, sheep do swim. Thank you. Ah, very good. Very good. Thank you. Um, okay, very good. Thank you. So, uh, okay, going on here. The Talmud records of one who sells an animal, yet retains for themselves its shearings and offspring. This is over in Bava Metzia. The purchaser is entitled to do with the animal whatever they wish. Nevertheless, the purchaser's ownership is limited in regard to shearings and offspring. The animal is considered as if it belongs to the seller. So that's interesting in regards to, to commodities. On a deeper level, the capacity to shed hair and grow anew represents our capacity to renew ourselves, which is a true spiritual gift, one we reflect on at this season of the Yamim Noraim. Rabbi Menachem Froman, the late Hasidic peace activist, um, wrote about the religious capacity for renewal. Now, um, I assume uh, over the last few years, Rabbi Menachem Froman's name has become more popular. If you've never heard of him, please check him out. He lived in Tekoa, which I believe is where Adin Steinzoltz of blessed memory lived also. I know that's where his yeshiva was. Maybe he lived in Yerushalayim. I don't know where he lived. Somebody could Google that also. But Adin Steinzoltz's yeshiva was in Tekoa. Menachem Froman was quite a different figure from him. Menachem Froman is, is a chas, was a chassid. He was a chassid, but not the type of chassid you think of. Um, his white kippah over there implies that he's, he's of, of Breslov uh, intent. Breslov, of course, is one of the only two Hasidic groups which are outward focused, right? All the Hasidic groups are inward focused. They don't want to do outreach. They don't want to engage with people outside their, their Hasidic denomination for the most part. They don't want to marry out. They don't want to engage out. But of course, Chabad Lubavitch, which is a very complicated group, um, engages in outward focus in terms of Kiruv, in terms of trying to bring people to be uh, Orthodox or at least engage in more traditional Jewish life. And then Breslov, which is less engaged in, in the mitzvah act as Chabad is and more in kind of the spirit, the spirit of Judaism in particular, the emotional life of it. And so Breslov, um, Rabbi Nachman Breslov, we, we, we share a lot of his teachings. Menachem Froman became a peace activist, engaged with radical, uh, radical um, uh, terrorists even uh, in, in conversation. He believed the problem of any peace process was that secular people are trying to make peace with secular people. And that won't work for various reasons. He suggested it's only going to work when religious people talk with each other because they're the ones who are holding on to the land most, most robustly. And until they are able to learn how to live together. Um, and that's why there's this whole movement now. Uh, well, it's still fringe, but it's growing among these kind of most religiously fervent, most Zionist fervent, most, most uh, Palestinian fervent groups that believe in um, uh, one land, um, one, what, 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 there, 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 there's really different ways of calling it, um, but one land um, and two people. And so it's not a two-state solution. It's a one-land solution of living together. Um, and, and so, because they don't want to give up on things. They don't want to give up on their holy sites. 
they want to figure out how they're going to live together. And so there's a whole bunch of groups trying to do that grassroots religious work. So Froman, Froman is the hero of those young, those young settlers who are doing that work because he was deeply Orthodox. He was deeply Hasidic. He was deeply a settler. Um, and yet he was also a hardcore, hardcore peace activist. And so to people on the right, that's offensive because you're talking with radicals. To people on the left, that's offensive because you're a settler. And so they kind of have their own type of movement of what they're engaged with over there. Anyways, here's what uh, Rabbi Froman of Blessed Memory wrote in uh, his book, Ten Lizman. The event of the new moon, Chidush, right? Um, Kidush Levana, the sanctification of the new moon, is where we're Makadesh, we're Makadesh, we sanctify the moon in order to be Makadesh, to renew. So he writes, the event of the new moon, the Chidush, was for Chazal, for the sages, the most intense instance where we encounter the creator and the renewer of the world. Revolutionary Marxism went to war against religion, primarily because it saw it as an anti-revolutionary force. Religious faith can lead us to conservative conclusions of status quo. Uh, status quo is my words. Religion can sanctify the status quo. Uh, so, no, I, sorry, <laughs> there he says it. Religion can sa sanctify the status quo as the handiwork of the creator. However, we might also come to the exact opposite conclusion. If a person believes that the world is created, mechudash, made anew, in medieval terminology, then, he, then they believe, he believes that the world could be radically remade anew. Okay, so here's what Froman is saying over here, if it wasn't clear. He's saying that, um, that, um, that there is a misunderstanding, well, not just a misunderstanding, there's a misinterpretation even, that religion is a radically conservative force. Now, of course, religion does have a conservative force to it, but that it's solely conservative, which is to say we operate uh, by status quo, we operate by maintaining the past rather than by, by evolving. We, um, we, we embrace natural order rather than by human um, evolution. Um, well, well those, aren't, those aren't opposites, but uh, natural order rather than human uh, in, uh, uh, intervention, I mean to say. Um, and, and revolutionary Marxism, he says, uh, rejects religion thus, and because it says we actually want to build a new world. And he says, actually, true religion, well, in which he case, what he really means is the Torah that he believes in is, um, is ultimately about a revolutionary force where we rebuild the world anew in partnership with God. Um, and thus, um, um, and we see that from the sanctification of the new moon, that in response to the natural order of the renewal of the moon, it should renew us such that we renew the world. Okay, so that's Froman over there. And um, this is relevant to what we're talking about again, because of this idea of shedding hair and growing back new hair, growing anew. This idea of radical transformation where we let go of our full past self, a full past era or generation, and then we grow a whole new head of hair. We grow, um, we allow ourselves to, um, um, it's interesting, as someone who didn't grow his beard, as you can tell from the picture, or even cut his hair, right? Uh, Gozes is not something, uh, the shearing of his own hair is not something he's interested in. Nonetheless, it's relevant to what we're talking about. Okay, here's Rav Cook. Rav Cook writes in Orota Kodesh. Okay, so, so let me see something about Rav Cook. Orot is his particularistic book. Orot is about nationalism and about Jewish peoplehood. Orota Kodesh is his universalistic book. He writes about the lights of humanity and the Jewish people's place within all of humanity. And so here he writes, the world is renewed through novel interpretations of Torah. 
wow, the world is renewed. This is simply because the innovation revealed to us in, in limited form comes to us as an infinitely diminished essence after the tremendous spiritual waves have flooded and flowed away, rolled, rolled from one world to another, becoming ever more constricted and diminished until they at last appear before us in the form of some innovation. At its source, this innovation is not a private lightning flash of intellect, but rather the renewal of a new land and according to the nature of what is renewed. So Rev Cook here also is dealing with, um, here he's dealing really with a polemic against the Haredim, because the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox in the land at that time, uh, were really very opposed to him. They saw him as, as a radical. And um, to give one example here, something we might be removed from agriculturally, uh, he really believed very strongly in Shemitah years of selling the land to Arabs selling the land to Arabs. Why would you do that? Because what's the alternative? In a Shemitah year, if you are a Jewish farmer in the land, you will have to not work your land for a year. And how will you sustain your family? You're living hand to mouth. You can't sustain your family. So the law is merely that, it, that, that Jews not work their land. So if you do a little legal maneuver and you say, okay, I'm going to sell the land to a Gentile, to an Arab in the land, and they'll work the land for the year, and that way they can sustain themselves. And then after the year, they'll go back to their work. Now, if you think Shemitah is about ecological restoration, about, about um, environmental restorative justice, then that doesn't really solve the problem because the idea is that the land needs rest. But if you think the idea is about worker renewal, the, a sabbatical for workers, um, then it does, it does still go in place. And if you think the law has nothing to do with that, it has to do with the holiness of the land um, or, or uh, just it's a hoax, it's about divine submission or something else, whatever the case is. So there's a lot of ways to understand that. Um, but he felt very strongly that um, we have to sustain, that living in the land now needs to be economically sustainable. And we have to have compassion for, for poor workers who need to get around this. And so he thought we need to renew that, that legal maneuver of selling the land. And the Haredim disagreed. The Haredim thought nobody can work the land. And why would you sell it to an Arab anyways? You know, these are not our friends. Um, we don't want such partnerships, whatever the case is. And so, so he, 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 he most certainly was conservative in his legal interpretations, but rather radical in his, broad, in his broader uh, societal understandings and in his broader, um, uh, uh, broader interpretations of Torah and, and of Kabbalah. And so he says the world is renewed through that. And so too, we can understand the shedding of the old hair of Torah interpretations such that new hair can once again uh, can once again grow. Um, so on this, uh, in, in this light, perhaps this is a story you've heard before. A man found a cocoon of an emperor moth. He took it home so that he could watch the moth come out of the cocoon. On the day a small opening appeared, he sat and watched the moth for several hours as the moth struggled to force the body through that little hole. The moth seemed to be stuck and appeared to have stopped making progress. It seemed as if it had gotten as far as it could go and not go any further. So the man, in his kindness, decided to help the moth. So he took a pair of scissors and snipped off the remaining bit of the cocoon. The moth then emerged easily, but its body was swollen and small, its wings wrinkled and shriveled. The man continued to watch the moth because he expected that at any moment the wings would enlarge and expand to an uh, and, and, uh, and be able to support the body, which would contract in time. Neither happened. In fact, the little moth spent the rest of its life crawling around with a small swollen body and shriveled wings. 
it never was able to fly. The man in his kindness and haste did not understand that the struggle required for the moth to get through the tiny opening was necessary to force fluid from the body of the moth into its wings so that it would be ready for flight upon achieving its freedom from the cocoon. Freedom and flight would only come after the struggle. By depriving the moth of a struggle, he deprived the moth of health. Sometimes, as we know so well, struggles are exactly what we need in life, even though we don't wish for them. If we were to go through our life without any obstacles, we would be crippled. We would not be as strong as what we, we could have been. Give, give every opportunity, we can give every opportunity a chance, we can leave no room for regrets, and not forget the power of the struggle in this moth story. And so this, um, this ability to, uh, to, uh, to emerge, to emerge anew, uh, will sometimes regard some str struggle, as we see with the sheep shearing as well here. And so our lives are like sheep that can be sheared. We constantly drop an old coat, whether that can be our hopes and our dreams, our desires, and grow a new one. Sometimes it can be hard to let go of a past vision for our life. On Shabbat, and in general, many of us are removed from animal care, but th this malacha reminds us that human needs inter interfere. Human reminds us that this type of interference can have the ability, excuse me, reminds us that human needs can interfere, have the ability to disrupt this natural order. One look at the world today shows how destructive humans can be during times of great hubris. Yet when we really take the time to dig deeper and consider how our personal choices and actions can have an effect on the world around us, we then have that sacred opening to reflect on our capacity for renewal. Okay, so um, thank you, friends. And I'm now going to open up our space for conversation, for questions and thoughts um, on any of this or anything related or unrelated. <laughs> Shmuley, it yes. seems to me um, that if you have a life where everything is done for you and you have no struggles or hardship, you grow up to be a self-centered egotist without any connection to real people. Is that a question or a statement? Uh, probably both. Okay. Well, um, that's a complicated idea. And um, to be sure, those who have had struggles, um, I don't think they naturally become stronger. Um, I, I have seen many who have had struggles, as we talked about here, and the capacity for that to strengthen them in constructive ways. And I have seen many who have had struggles for that to have one of two negative effects either for that to weaken them, not making them stronger. Um, and I can think of many examples of that as you can as well, or for that to make them stronger, but in ways that are bitter or destructive, they are stronger in a way where they can no longer emotionally feel. I know people who had, who had certain challenges and it made them emotionally repressed, uh, emotionally repressed. Um, and so, 
I do think that I should have qualified this earlier because sometimes we oversimplify as I did and we say people with struggles are stronger or more giving or loving um, because those struggles make them who they are. You know, the story of the moth coming out of the cocoon, the necessary struggle. And so I do think that, um, that those struggles can be very, uh, very constructive, especially when there's a mentor there. I think probably the number one factor of struggles being helpful is when someone ha has um, someone alongside them to make meaning of that struggle. You know, going back to Victor, Strankel, Victor Frankel and Life in Search of Meaning, the need for meaning making, in particular around struggles. Because I think more likely without mentorship or some emotional nourishment around the struggle, then it will lead to one of the more destructive elements, either emotional repression, anger, um, destructive relationships to other people who haven't struggled, right? I have struggled, so I'm mad at people who haven't struggled. They should be torn down. Um, or, uh, or someone has been weakened um, in, in, in various ways. Now, to your point around those who have not struggled, um, I think both are, true, are probably true. I think the most likely consequence, like you have said, um, is that, um, uh, that one who has not struggled will be unempathetic. Um, they will never understand people who have struggled. Um, and they um, will not be so strong. They'll be quite fragile. They'll be quite fragile that actually they now have to have some experience hits them and they can't handle that challenge because they've never learned how to do that. Um, and, so, um, um, and so that is quite common. We see that. It's, it is part of what some people call white fragility. Um, that there's much more to that concept and it's all also gets misused in a way of white shaming in, in a lot of cases, uh, which I don't, I don't think is, is very helpful, um, to imply that, you know, white people have a fundamental flaw because of their skin. It's essential to them. But I think that what's more relevant here is, uh, the notion of those who have had such a, a, a level of privilege in their life that they can't even access those who haven't. They have no clue what it's like. To, to live a life that doesn't have certain privileges. And so that's quite common. And yet there are people I know, um, and, and, and in many ways I, I wouldn't, um, uh, uh, I, I, in some ways I would, I would really in include myself, um, those people who really have lived such a blessed life and yet feel a spiritual and intellectual mandate to be uncomfortable um, in, in being able to cultivate such empathy. Uh, to engage in a process of dialogue and of learning and of relationships where one is removed from their comfort zone um, in order to, to really understand more deeply. And so um, I think this is quite true. And I think this is how I think of education. Um, one, ways that, one of the ways I think of education is, uh, is, is to go, in, uh, go out of our comfort zone. Now, if you think of it like a little chart, if you go too hot into the discomfort, people shut down. It's too uncomfortable. But if you go too low into discomfort, people also shut down because it's boring. I think what actually need is needed for education is that we're just a little bit uncomfortable, enough that we're learning. Our, our preconceived notions are being challenged, and that makes us uncomfortable, and yet not so uncomfortable that it, it rocks our boat. To say this a different way, in psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, the way we talk about this is um, you have to provide someone else a new foundation to stand on 
before you strip someone's exi existing foundation. Yeah. Right. It would be considered an act of violence to strip someone's foundation of where they stand before providing them a new place to stand. And so, too, with children, um, if we're going to introduce really complicated concepts like the Holocaust, like racial injustice, like um, like afterlife, um, like um, um, gender discrimination, things that are really complicated, we're going to have to think about um, wh what they're letting go of in order to embrace this new understanding to make them uncomfortable. And we're gonna have to think about the developmental stages involved there. So I'm curious, um, as we move on to other questions as well, if other people agree or disagree with my, long, my way too long-winded reflection on this idea of struggle and virtue, and the idea that struggle does not necessarily lead to virtue, and a lack of struggle does not necessarily lead to vice. And yet there is a correlation. I think if we looked at the correlation, struggle can deeply help um, the need for for virtue. Now, I would like to think, I my, my wife and I were talking about this recently. Do we wish pain? I, no, no, actually it was my brother, excuse me. Not that I mix the two up often, but the two people I love. So, but um, um, do we wish pain for our children? Um, and the truth is we said, um, um, we, we, we don't pray that our children don't have pain. We think our pain is a natural process of life. I don't pray that my children don't experience pain. I wish they don't suffer, right? And I think suffering has to do with the interpretation of pain. And the interpretation of pain can lead us towards self-centeredness. Um, and it can lead us towards a narrow, a narrowing of our spiritual life or, or an expansiveness. And pain doesn't have to lead to suffering, but pain is natural to the human experience, just like every emotion is natural. And the question is what we do with that pain. And so do we use that, um, uh, you know, again, how do we channel that pain? So too, uh, struggle and how we channel that struggle. Okay, let me pause. Let me pause for someone else. I have a thought. Please, yeah. Um, I think struggling through pain is somewhat necessary, but it's also a romantic notion that you have to have pain to be, to learn or whatever, mm -hmm. to grow. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what you say to somebody like one door opens, one door closes, another one opens. Right, right. Now, this is something to ease your pain. Yes. Great, great. Carol, um, do you want to say more? No, that's my okay, Thank you. Carol, I think, I, I think that's great. I think that's great. And I think that, um, you know, um, I, I take for granted that we, we haven't all gone through pastoral school. But I, I also, be, and the reason I take that for granted is because knowing the people on this call, um, there's a lot of emotional intelligence. But one of, in Pastoral Counseling 101, um, we would know we never want to copy Job's friends, right? Eov's friends. You never make meaning of someone else's suffering for them, right? Now, this ought to be obvious, but just to restate the obvious, we can make meaning of our own suffering. I can say, this suffering makes me better. This pain I'm going to use to make me stronger. But we don't want to say to someone else, um, this stuff, suffering is good for you. This pain is good for you, um, right? What we want to say is, how can I reduce your suffering? How can I reduce your pain? How can I help you? How can I sit with you? How can I hold some of that pain with you, right? We don't want to explain to someone else. Tell me if you disagree with me, but this feels like, like uh, pretty clear to me. Um, that trying to some, tell someone else that their pain is good for them actually can deepen the suffering. Um, and like you said, Carol, so well, it, it's a romantic notion. And, and I hate to say, just like I don't think Judaism says, I don't think Christianity says 
But the dominant thrust in traditional Christian thought is that suffering is good, right? Because Jesus suffers, and thus we suffer in a Christ-like fashion. And I think this is not the dominant thrust of Jewish thought. Um, suffering is an evil to overcome. Yes, it may be used for good, but is an evil to overcome. It is something to protest. Um, it is something to protest. And um, we protest it in our life. We protest it through medical research. We protest it through fighting injustice. Um, and we protest it through, you know, taking care of our own mental health. Um, that said, it is a natural part of the human experience that can have spiritual benefits when we choose to frame it that way. But we cannot romanticize it in general for others as well. So, Carol, thank you for that, frame, that framing. Um, Shmili, I totally agree with you, too. I've had times when things were bad, and to have someone say, you know, oh, this is, will be for the better, to be honest, you want to punch him on. Yeah. Um, having, and it's cruel. It's just cruel. But having said that, mm -hmm. just from my own experiences, my family's experiences, suffering can do one of two things. It can either make you resilient mm -hmm. or completely break you. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is also what you go after, like breaking hope. Um, I'm going to just give it very, very quickly, but my dad was a survivor. Mm. Came to Canada, learned, taught himself English, went through U of T, PhD student, right? He already got his master's. When he finished his, all his coursework and he was a TA and working on his thesis, new head of the department comes in and tells him, no Jew will ever work in this department, you're wasting your time. That broke my father for the rest of his life. Yeah. So I think, you know, mm -hmm. he survived the Shoah, he came to Canada, he found a wife, um, and, but he went through that suffering with resilience, mm -hmm. and then as soon as it was like another smack in the face, broken man. Mm -hmm. So I think there's only so much suffering a human being can take yes. before it completely breaks mm -hmm. you. Yeah, that very well said. You know, the Kutzker Rebbe, Lauren, thank you for sharing that. And that's, that's incredibly powerful. And I know very personal for you. And the Kutzker Rebbe says, um, and I, I may have shared this in a past session, but just to, um, uh, to share it again, because I think it's very relevant to what you said. He said, the, the Kutzker Rebbe says, Avraham had 10 tests. And he passed those tests. But in the Akedah, his final test, Avraham Avinu never came off the mountain which is to say he never recovered from that trauma. Um, he spiritually never um, left that mountain. And there are some challenges in our life that we overcome, and there are other challenges which we simply never overcome. And I think sometimes going back to over-romanticizing, we sometimes over-romanticize survivors, survivors of domestic abuse, survivors of the Shoah, survivors of child abuse, by saying, look how strong they are. They healed themselves and they picked themselves up and they went out to, you know, to heal others as well. And we don't leave space to acknowledge the brokenness that's still there. Um, that even in people who have survived, um, we shouldn't over-romanticize it in a way that makes it sound like these are, um, that these are people who have um, transcended human nature. There are dimensions of brokenness which never go away, and um, and and there are and there are are so many things in that person's life which can can, can continue to to trigger that pain so deeply. Now it's so interesting to look at survivors. Of course, there's many different types of survivors, but politically, if you look at survivors in two in, I think they can oftentimes fall out in two camps. Um, there is the survivor who says never again for the Jews. 
they are hawkish and they say, you know what? I saw what the world can do to Jews and I, and I'm a hawk. Never again will you mess with the Jews. And then there's another extreme, which kind of moves away from Jewish particularism and moves towards a universalism and says, um, you know, never again, um, really implied to sort of a broader universalistic mandate. And then, of course, there are those in the middle who mean both. If you look, like, look at someone like an Elie Wiesel or, or others, and to some degree, I would consider my, myself that. While I certainly have a dovish, a dovish element to me in regards to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I have a deep down hawkish side also, which just feels like never again do you mess with the Jews, just that Holocaust consciousness. Of course, that is coupled with a, a dovish side as well. But that's so deeply ingrained in me, that sense of you don't mess with the Jews again, you know? Um, that, uh, and, and that is alongside the idea that, geez, we've had dozens of genocides since, since, uh, since the Shoah. How dare us say never again, you know? And so um, uh, surviving and being a second generation, a third generation and beyond is so complicated. And the trauma that comes along with that and how we talk about surviving. Um, uh, again, I think there is the element of what we do with it ourselves, how we talk to others, and then how we talk about our collective narrative. And I think the Jewish people still have a very unhealthy, in, in many cases, a very unhealthy narrative around how we talk about victimhood, how we talk about Jews and sovereignty, how we talk about Jews as victims, how we talk about power, and the relationship between all these. And I see it in myself, as I just talked about just now, this notion of, um, uh, of you know, the, the capacity for the oppressed to become oppressors. The capacity that when you're a dog, when you're a dog who's been abused, you'll bite any, anyone who touches you wrong, you know? Anyone who touches you wrong, you're gonna bite. And, um, and I see that, um, we see this time and time again, that when you're wounded, um, you can hurt a lot of people. Okay, uh, okay, let's, uh, let's hear from someone else. So, um I'd like to um, pick up on another tangent um, that you brought up, Rup Shmuley, about the human need uh, to interfere can have the ability to disrupt the natural order. We were talking about cheering there. But it's occurred to me uh, often as we were going through the 39 Malakot, um, you know, that came from that time when we were building the Mishkan, and now we know what we're not uh, allowed to do on Shabbat, is that, um, and we would be uh, separating, we're threshing and throwing away. We're in the desert, it didn't matter. But coming into the present time where we've had evolved our consciousness that you really can't throw away anything, or that our actions have um, unintended consequences in the national, natural order, that it's much more complicated now. So it seems to me a bit of the oral Torah when we're examining these avod and the toldot, you know, the secondary aspects of this, that um, it's not only the uh, process that we're doing or not doing, it's what the result of that or what the byproducts are that we're also responsible for. So it's kind of bringing all of that list from way back when, when life was simpler in a way into our present situation. Um, there's a lot of permutations of each of these actions uh, that have unintended consequences. Beautiful, beautiful, love it. I'm, I'm not going to respond to that, but I, because I, I think it was just, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a helpful new framework for us to think about. Thank you for that, Andrea. Okay, someone else.
who else would like to ask or share? Rabbi? Yes, please. You talked about um, empathy. You can't have empathy unless you, you've experienced or whatever. Um, is that true? I mean, can't you intellectually empathize? Mm. Okay, good. So firstly, I'm sorry if I, if I, if I said it as, um, as black and white as the way you, you stated it. I certainly didn't mean to say that one uh, who didn't have a certain struggle cannot. Um, I, I, I think what I had, what I had intended was um, that it, is, uh, it can be more challenging. Um, but it says in Pirkei Avot that no one um, can judge another unless they have stood in their, um, you know, in the same place and in their spot. And so, um, uh, and so the conclusion of that Pirkei Avot, I think, is that basically we can't judge because no one has ever stood in the same spot as another person. Um, of course, there are things, uh, you know, as a matter of societal order, there are processes of judgment. But in regards to um, so everyone else has unique, uh, unique genes, unique, unique experiences and memories, unique, um, uh, uh, unique thoughts. And so uh, we all stand in really a different place and the capacity to judge uh, should be limited. Um, or a, our, our willingness to judge. And so um, I think that the same thing emerges with empathy. So too, we can't ever truly access where someone stands unless we've been in a very similar spot. However, I think that we can tap into something in our own experience that can help us to, uh, to access that empathy intellectually, emotionally, even spiritually. I definitely most definitely think that's impossible. I definitely think that is possible. And, um, and I think that each of us has that. I think that's one of the gifts of being a Jew is that tapping into our own marginalization as, through our Jewish history can help us access the marginalization um, of other communities. Um, tapping into our own experience as refugees and, and as immigrants helps us tack, tack, tap into the experience of being refugee and immigrants of others. Now, uh, once again, people can twist that. There is, there is a false Jewish narrative in America that emerges among some groups that says, Jews came here legally, and so you better come here legally too, right? Actually, that's not true. Historically, that's not true. Jews forged their passports to come here. Um, many Jews came illegally seeking refuge. Of course, many Jews came legally, but that, that history is not true. And that's also a very short-term view of history. Jews were constantly crossing borders throughout history as, as, as refugees. And so, um, uh, but a more uh, compassionate viewpoint, which bracketing the political uh, you know, perspectives, is merely tapping into that narrative, that, that Jewish narrative, and being able then to see in the new moment someone in that someone in that similar experience. It, you know, it doesn't matter if I have good relationships with Muslims or not, right? The fact that this person is a refugee comes before the fact of how I think about how I perceive Muslims from this country or that country, right? This is first and foremost a person similar to my own experience, or it doesn't matter what my experience with people from Central America has been, right? First and foremost, I say, wow, there's an empathy that comes from uh, my own experience. Um, so too, even if someone has never lived in poverty, 
Um, we've all experienced lack of some kind, limitations of some kind that can be tapped into. Or all of us have been shamed or marginalized in some ways or felt lonely in ways that can help us uh, to, you know, to, 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 uh, to reach others. So again, I do think that those who have struggled in certain ways may have um, deeper resources to pull upon for empathy to people who are struggling with something very similar. But, and, and I do think it can be more challenging for those who have not had those struggles, although we never wish those struggles on anyone. And yet, I most certainly do think, Carol, um, and I think it's implied in your question that you think so as well, that, um, that actually our capacity for empathy can, can transcend our own experiences. And, and I think that this is perhaps in the top three ways of how I would think of Jewish education, right? Yes, there's teach kids holidays and teach them Hebrew and teach them about Israel and teach them about, um, you know, the Holocaust. But th the deeper level of Jewish education, as I see it, is developing our capacity for empathy which I understand is not just a human experience, but a deeply Jewish um, experience of deepening that sense of godliness within ourself to hold otherness within the self, to hold the capital O other, to hold God within self, um, that, that thought God awareness, but also the human otherness. And of course, those get conflated in a Buber thought or in a Levinas thought, um, the, the, God and, the God other and the person other. But the other enters myself, right? It's not that I'm encountering the other beyond myself, um, but actually that would be sympathy. But empathy is when the other has entered the self. I feel your pain. I feel your experience within myself such that I'm empathizing with you. I'm experiencing it, not just sympathizing or pitying you, right? I've, I brought it in. And to bring that in is not a political awareness. It's not a moral awareness. It's not intellectual. It actually involves the inner capacity to hold right? To, right. That one has the emotional intelligence, um, the resiliency, however it's been cultivated, to be able to hold that complexity and that pain within the self as if one was going through it, right? Now, as a foster parent, this is my life right now. This is my life right now because these children who enter our home, their traumas become a part of our life. When these kids are screaming in the middle of the night for me um, because of what they've gone through, I'm now, with, I, I'm now with them in that, in a way where I have to try to access what they've experienced in terms of trauma, such that I can respond to it, right? Is it, what, what happened to them in the dark? These scars on their body that happened on their bodies in the dark, right? What happened? And how do they view me as a male, as a male, actually, in this case, these scars happen from, 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 uh, from, from a female, but, uh, but some of their traumas are related to males as well. But as a male in the middle of the night, in the dark, how, and holding, holding them in their time of trauma, how do I relate to that in a way that's not just othering, but I'm really internalizing what they must be experiencing as a two-year-old and as a three-year-old? And so this is really difficult. This is really difficult work. And, 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 I, and I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I didn't really understand the feminism stuff um, until I had daughters. I, I mean, I, I still don't understand it. I'm, I, I have so much more to learn still, uh, you know. But I started to understand a little bit with my mother when my mother, my parents got divorced and my mother started dating and thinking about her in, in that type of relationship. And then I understand it a little bit more when I got married and thinking of my wife in the workplace and, and in other places. And then I, and then I had daughters. And, um, and, and I'm sorry to say that it, it wasn't through empathy that I was able to get there. It was really through love. 
It was through loving people and, and wanting the best for them that I could then see, wow, because you're a girl at school, that boy is treating you differently. That teacher is treating you differently. You know, and, be, and it's not out of a feminist principle, but out of my love for you that I'm understanding this, that I want that reality to be different. So I say I'm sorry to, under, to say that because it shouldn't take love, personal love, to understand um, something like this. It should take empathy on a broader level. Um, but that's not always the case. And so I still have a lot to learn from that. And hopefully I can get there through empathy, not just through love. And so uh, with that, I'm sorry we went a minute over time here. I always love engaging with y'all here. And um, that was number 12, Gozes. <laughs> and I look forward to number 13, which will be our one-third through the Malachot next week. We're sticking to 10 o'clock Pacific, 1 o'clock Eastern. I wish everyone, because Monday will be Yom Kippur and Tuesday we'll be together, so we won't talk until the, at the end of that on our way to Sukkot. I wish everyone a very meaningful Yom Kippur, where we not only beat our chests, but we build upon the good. Let's, let's not only break down the bad in us, but let's build on the good. Let's celebrate. Just as we have sinned, we have erred. We have also built up. We have also loved. We have also um, given tzedakah. We've also fight for what's just and good. We've done so much good. Let's not only break down the bad. Let's also build up the good in us because all of us have so much to be proud of as well. Shana Tova, wishing you a meaningful day of reflection. Have a great day.